listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Well, friends, Merry Christmas. Believe it or not, we are only halfway through the Christmas season. 12 days of Christmas is a real thing. So if you're the kind of person that's already packed everything up, put the Christmas decorations away, you're going to want to go home after today's service, pull all of them out again, redecorate, go cut yourself a fresh Christmas tree to last you for the rest of the season. Next week, we are going to be back in our series on 1 John, which I never really announced this, so if you kind of thought we got halfway through 1 John and then just sort of stopped, we're going to pick up right where we left off, which will be in chapter 4. So we got two more chapters to go in that. That will take us all the way up until Lent at the end of February. Uh, But today, I want to talk about something near and dear to most of our hearts. New Year's resolutions. Who's got them? I don't see... Any hands? I may need to scrap this sermon and start over. Okay, we have one. I'll I'll preach it, I guess, then. Uh, I want to talk about New Year's resolutions. And and just ask you to kind of be thinking about this. What are your resolutions for the new year? What are your goals? I know I've got mine. Some of our goals are pretty ambitious, right? Like it would be nice to win the lottery If you're a Packers fan, it would be nice for them to win the game today. But sometimes, you know, our reach exceeds our grasp. We're not going to get there. I'm going to get, I'm going to get, I don't know. I'm going to hear about that later. That's okay. Um, So some of us have very ambitious goals. Others of them are more like, you know, I'd I'd like to get to the gym X number of times each month. Or I'd like to read so many books by the end of the year, right? These These are good resolutions. Others of us, our New Year's goals are kind of non-existent. Maybe we're just not planners, or we're, we're, we're not all about resolutions and that kind of thing. And, and that's okay. Maybe you're not a big life planner. But this morning, I want to suggest to you that there are two different mindsets we can bring to 2023, and whichever mindset you have will greatly affect the outcome, and not just of your New Year's resolutions, but of life in general. So whichever one of these two mindsets you have will drastically affect how you understand yourself, your failures, your successes, and most importantly, how you understand God. Scripture tells us that every single person on this earth, which is to say every single person in this room as well, falls into one of two categories. You are either living your life freely or as a slave. Which one are you? Now, your knee-jerk response is going to be, well, of course, I'm not not enslaved to anything. I'm I'm free. I I live freely. And that makes sense. But I want to encourage you to pump the brakes for a moment and to check that impulse, at least for now. So our text today is going to be from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there now with me. Otherwise, it will be up on the screen. But as you're doing this, I want to give you a snapshot, at least, of the book of Galatians. Because it's hard to turn to any book 
in general, and this includes the book of the Bible, right in the middle and kind of get what's going on. So here's a snapshot of, of what's happening in Galatians, okay? In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about freedom in Christ. He says that Christians are free from the tyranny of the law, from the lordship of the law. The classic verse for this is Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And we're going to talk more about what that looks like in a moment, this being under the lordship of the law. But, but for now, it's important to know that for the Apostle Paul, and therefore for us, the stakes here in Galatians are incredibly high, like crazy high, because, I mean, even more so than in many of other of Paul's letters, because most of the time when you write a letter to someone, you start it out like, right, dear so-and-so, hey, how is life? Here's what's going on with my family. And Paul oftentimes has these greetings. But with Galatians, he kind of just dispenses with all of that, and he gets right to the heart of the issue. He goes straight for the jugular pretty much right here. Why? Well, because the very heart of the gospel is on the line. By falling back into their old habits of slavery to the law, the Galatians are in danger of losing their salvation. They want to add their own works to the salvation equation. And Paul is he's just not having it. So he writes to shake them out of it and to remind them that Jesus alone is enough, right? Jesus was enough to, to get you in, and Jesus alone is enough to keep you in as well. And today's text is just seven verses long, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So I think we're going to just take this in a few separate chunks. But before we do that, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Because without you, this is a closed book. I pray that you would shed light. God, on what you are saying to us, on and pray that you would shed light on who we are and on who you are and on your great love for us. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Galatians 4, verses one through three. We're in the habit of standing here. Let's do that. Just for these first three verses at least. Galatians 4, one through three. It goes like this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You may be seated. I realize I'm dating myself when I say this, but some of you may remember when Princess Diana died in 1997. She left a sizable inheritance to her two sons, William and Harry, in the amount of $20.4 million. With investments and interests, that amount grew during their teens and 20s to $31.4 million. 
But there was a catch. They were only able to inherit this considerable estate after their 30th birthdays. So in a very real sense, before they turned 30, this inheritance wasn't really theirs, right? Like it was in, in theory, but in practice, not so much because until that point, it was guarded, it was walled off, it was away from them. And in a, in a very real sense, they, would have, they were really no better than servants. They may as well have been gardens or janitors in the royal household than sons. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. He, he says it quite literally. The heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. As long as you're under the care of guardians and managers, your inheritance really isn't yours to do with it as you will. It's behind red tape and in a bank vault until you come of age. Other people are handing it. Other people have it under lock and key, not you. It's more just a theory rather than a fact and doesn't really mean anything because you don't get to enjoy it, right? Paul is, is making a comparison here. And he's saying that in the same way, the law functions like our overseer or our manager. In just a few verses prior to this, he speaks of the law as being a guardian, or some translations say schoolmaster, that stood over us until Christ arrived on the scene. Now, until then, we were these spiritually immature children enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In other words, apart from Christ, we are all slaves. Slaves to what? Well, it's a very specific kind of slavery that Paul is talking about here, especially considering the context of his Jewish audience. He's talking about slavery to the law. We are slaves to the law. That's the default operating system of the human heart, and it's not so easily deprogrammed. But what does this mean? What, what does it mean to be a slave to the law? Well, you really have to read all of Galatians, and you look and in, in, in study Romans as well, and you, you'll arrive at a, a more, a fuller understanding of what this means, but basically he's talking about living in such a way that our own obedience and our own good behavior matter most, more than anything. It means that I ascribe a sense of ultimacy to my own efforts. You see, to be a slave to the law means I believe my relationship with God is secured by my own moral striving. Someone who is living under the law, for example, is unable to see beyond the do and do nots, the thou shalt and thou shalt nots, to the cross of it is finished. Another word for this is legalism. Apart from Christ, we are enslaved to the idea that our goodness is what makes us worthy of God's love and the love of other people. I have to prove through my own blood, sweat, and tears that I measure up, that I am enough. In biblical terms, I feel the need to justify myself. But the Apostle Paul says this old way of thinking is kind of like Microsoft DOS. 
seeing a lot of glazed overlooks and uh, a lot of confused faces. Believe it or not, guys, there used to be this thing before Windows called Microsoft DOS. You would go to Target. I would go to Target because Bemidji had a Target, and that meant it was the, the huge, a huge city, right? I'd go to Target, buy a new computer game. I'd come home, and you power up the machine, and, uh, you know, 45 minutes later, uh, this thing on the right would come up. So you didn't used to have Windows. I don't think you even needed a, a, a mouse to... To navigate. It was just this, this black screen with, with white text and a blinking cursor, and you would have to type in commands with a keyboard. You'd type in like install, and then you'd have to specify in this directory or, or copy or delete or, or whatever it was, right? Microsoft DOS, I would venture to guess most of you are not using Microsoft DOS today. Fair assumption. We're all the way up to Windows 11 at this point, actually. So DOS, it had a very important function at the time, but now, not so much. We've moved past that because everything that Microsoft DOS wanted to be, Windows now is. It does it faster and does it better. And so because of that, we are free from this old operating system. The Apostle Paul is saying that living as a slave to the law is like running back to this old operating system. When Christ has, in fact, upgraded us to something new. Rather than living under the law, we live under the Spirit. We live in the Spirit. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says something similar in his commentary. This is absolutely Brilliant. I love what he says here. Listen to this. He says, I often compare the role of the law in history to the role typewriters have played in, develop, in the development of word processing. We realize that the computer far transcends the typewriter. Everything that a typewriter wanted to be when it was a little boy and more is now found in the computer. This compares to the law. Everything the law wanted to be when it was young, as revealed in Moses, is found now in Christ and in the life of the Spirit. Not because the law is contrary to the promises, rather because the law is fulfilled in Christ and the Spirit in a manner similar to the way a typewriter is fulfilled in the technology of a computer. And I am profoundly thankful for both. That's a helpful comparison. So bottom line, slavery to the law is the only option apart from Christ. So those are the first three verses. Let's jump ahead to the next two. Verses four through five. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, what are we talking about here? Well, Christmas, right? The fullness of time had come when God sent forth Jesus to be born in a manger to the Virgin Mary. And the text here also says that he was born under the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that he was born Jewish. That's 
he was born Jewish and was required to obey every law of Moses. And in case you haven't read the Old Testament, spoiler alert, there's a whole lot of laws. A whole lot of them. But Jesus obeyed all of these fully and completely, without fail, to redeem us, as the text says. The word redeem here, it means to, to purchase or to buy back. And he's saying, look, previously, apart from Jesus, we were under the jurisdiction, under the lordship of the law, the system of do's and don'ts which rewarded or punished us based on our obedience. But Jesus purchased our redemption. He bought us back from that jurisdiction with his own blood at the cross. And that means we as Christians are no longer servants of the law, but God's free, beloved children. Through faith, through belief, his obedience becomes our obedience and we receive adoption as God's sons. Now, just a brief caveat here. You're hearing this language about adoption as God's son. Well, if you're a woman, you're probably like, well, how does that apply to me? I'm not a son, right? Why not sons and daughters? Well, we have to remember that these letters, letters like Galatians, and not just Galatians, all of the New Testament, and really all of Scripture as well. It was all written for us, but not originally written to us. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that every letter, Galatians here included, because that's what we're talking about today, was written to a specific people in a specific time, in a specific place, in a specific culture, which means that in order for us to understand it, we got to know a little bit about that culture. And in Jewish culture, it was the sons who actually had the inheritance rights. So, when Paul says that believers, which includes men and women, receive adoption as sons, he means we receive all of the blessings and legal benefits that go along with it, right? Had he said we receive adoption as sons and daughters, it would actually have meant less since women in that day couldn't inherit. Does that kind of make sense? He's simply speaking the language of the time to communicate a timeless truth, which is that we are adopted into God's family with all of the rights that pertain to that status. God sent His Son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Adoption. Can we just pause to marvel at this image of adoption? I was blessed to grow up in a family with two adopted siblings. This is us a couple of years back. Esther and Rebecca, though, they were five and seven. They are biological siblings. They're five and seven. We adopted them from India when I was in high school. And you know how it is as a high schooler, as a teenager, right? Like, you're already terribly embarrassed by your family. And we had four kids already. So I was like, do we really want to add two more to this? Now people can see the, the Chelhog clan coming from miles away. But uh, my parents thought so. And uh, we adopted 
Esther and Rebecca. And at the time, the only words they could say in English were their ABCs. And a very funny rendition of Old MacDonald Had a Farm. As you can imagine, it took a lot of adjusting, both on our part and theirs. So when Esther and Rebecca, they first arrived here, you have to remember, in, in most countries, in India in particular, women are treated very poorly. So when they arrived here, they were terrified of myself, my dad, and my brother. They, wouldn't, they didn't even want to be alone with us for a couple minutes. They wouldn't even have conversations with us. But little by little... We showed them that there was nothing to be scared of. We loved them. We included them in our lives, played games with them, and they opened up their hearts to us. And the pendulum swung the complete other direction. So now were they not, they weren't even, they weren't just unafraid of us. They couldn't like let us go. <laughs> and they wore us out with their endless requests for piggyback rides. See, in the end, there was no distinction between birth children and adopted children in the Chelhog household. Paul is saying that's how it is with God's family, too, which is crazy to think about because what that amounts to is that when God looks at you and when he looks at Jesus, he sees no difference. Because there's no distinction between natural and adopted children. Jesus is God's only begotten Son. We are the adopted ones. But when God looks at us, He wears the exact same smile on His face that He wears when He looks at Jesus. When God adopts us into His family through faith, we receive all of His gracious benefits peace with God, forgiveness, and eternal life. See, our relationship with God is, is fundamentally altered. As John Bombaro notes, we can call God our Father rather than our judge. It is a totally new way to be human, free in Christ. Let's jump ahead to verses 6 through 7 of chapter 4. These are the last two verses we'll look at this morning. He says, and because you are sons, right? We've been adopted as, as sons, received into God's family. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son than an heir through God. As we wrap up our passage here, Paul lists three benefits of becoming God's children. Here they are. Benefit number one, we receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in certain Christian circles, it's popular to talk about the Holy Spirit in such a way that you would think you need to do something more to receive him. Not according to Paul, not according to Scripture. 
When you receive God, you receive all of God. God doesn't give himself partially. God is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He doesn't give us two-thirds of him at, at the point of conversion and then the rest of him later on. God doesn't withhold like that. He, he doesn't give us to himself piecemealed. So are you a believing child of God? If so, then the Holy Spirit is yours, living in your hearts, empowering you and giving you authority as his child. That's benefit number one. We receive the Holy Spirit. Benefit number two, we gain a special intimacy with God. The word that's used here, it's in verse six. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. This word Abba is, is really unique. It's, a, it's an intimate, familiar term, kind of like English Papa. That's not a word people back then would have used to describe an all-holy, all-powerful God. And to many, it may have even seemed insulting. But when we are adopted, right, our, our relationship with God, it fundamentally changes. It's altered. There, there's a closeness now that's there that wasn't there before, which means we are free to come before God on personal, intimate terms because he is our friend as jesus himself says in john fifteen fifteen. no longer do i call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but i have called you friends for all that i have heard from my father i have made known to you benefits of being God's adopted children. We receive the Holy Spirit. We gain a special intimacy with God. And finally, we become heirs. If you are someone's son or daughter, whether naturally or adopted, what do you have to do to become an heir? That sounds like a silly question, doesn't it? Like, the answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing, right? If I were to ask my dad, hey, 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 dad, you know, I'd really like to get in on that family inheritance. What do I have to do to make that happen? He's not going to negotiate with me and be like, well, son, if you, if you put in 40 hours a week on the farm for the next 30 years, I'll see if I can pull some strings. Instead, he's going to look at me like I'm crazy and he's going to say, what, what are you talking about? You're my son. And I love you. You don't earn an inheritance, do you? You simply receive it by virtue of your last name. In the parable of the prodigal son, the merciful father simply says these words to his boy, and they're some of the most powerful words in the whole parable. He says, son, all that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours. Interestingly, when he says this, he's speaking to the unrepentant older son, the jealous and petty one. God gives us his blessings not because we deserve them, but because he loves us. 
As Paul says in Romans 8, 17, if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I love the way that Tim Keller puts this. He says, our inheritance is not a prize to be won. It is a gift from Christ. Isn't that good? Our inheritance is not a prize to be won. It is a gift from Christ. So, what does all this have to do with 2023 and New Year's resolutions and you? Well, let's bring back the question we started with at the beginning. Are you living freely or as a slave? In other words, are you living as a beloved, adopted child of God? Or are you still struggling under a regime of punishments and rewards where everything depends on your own willpower. In other words, are you still living as a slave to the law? If you are, you'll treat your successes and failures in the coming year as ultimate, and you'll define yourself by them. If you attain your goal, you'll feel like a success. If you don't, you'll feel like a failure. You, your identity will ultimately rest on your own efforts. But if, if you are living as God's beloved adopted child, then you are free from having to measure your worth by your accomplishments. Your successes and failures don't define you. Your relationship with God is what defines you. One pastor reflecting on the new year and new year's resolutions says this, he said, what I'm most deeply grateful for is that God's love for us, approval of us, and commitment to us does not ride on the strength of our resolutions, but rather on Jesus' resolve for us. The gospel is the good news, announcing Jesus' infallible devotion to us in spite of our inconsistent devotion to Him. The gospel is not a command to hang on to Jesus, it's a promise that no matter how weak and unsuccessful your efforts may be, God is always holding on to you. You, dear Christian, are a beloved, forgiven daughter or son of Jesus, adopted into his family, defined by what He did for you. And in the end, that is the only thing that matters. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.